Welcome back to the Yankee Air Pirate Podcast. I'm Pat Stratton, and I'm your host. The last time on the podcast, during episode number 10, we discussed the formation of Camp Unity in the Wallow Prison in late 1970, just after the Sante Raid. During this episode, we're going to pick up the story again back in Hanoi, discussing the health care our POWs received. This is an oxymoron for the most part. Even simple health care issues that we can handle with little problem here in the United States sometimes became a major issue for the POWs. Sometimes these simple problems even became life-threatening while in Vietnam. So let's get right back to it. We hope you enjoy this episode of the Yankee Air Pirate Podcast. Dad, how are you doing today, my friend? I am doing magnificent. How are you doing, Patrick? I'm doing fantastic. I appreciate you sitting down to doing another uh, edition of the Yankee Air Pirate with me. It's always fun going through these things. So first thing that we're going to do, like we always do, is uh, we got some emails uh, with some questions, and we are going to answer those in the lightning round this morning. And the first one is coming in from a good friend of mine by the name of Sean Mangan. And he's asking, uh, he wants to know, do you think that there were some POWs left behind there in either Vietnam or Laos, left behind alive and uh, never, never been released? I have no knowledge whatsoever of any guy being left behind anywhere in Southeast Asia uh, against his own free will. Uh, there were deserters that stayed behind. Uh, Garwood, for example, comes to mind as one and came out about six years later. But there's no reason uh, in my mind to believe that anyone was left alive behind. Yeah, and you mentioned this guy Garwood. Wasn't he the guy, was he an Army infantry guy that got captured, not a pilot? Well, I'm ashamed to say that he was a Marine. He was? But the Marines, he is the only one that was punished uh, on homecoming of the people that betrayed the country, and uh, at least the Marine Corps did that. Okay. All right. Good deal. Uh, next question uh, came in. This was actually a post on uh, the the Yankee Air Pirate Facebook page, and the question is about the tap code. Uh, I posted a picture on the Yankee Air Pirate Facebook page um, of the tap code and what it looked like, the five by five grid that you all put together to communicate with. And on top of that document that I posted, it's called the quadratic code. And the question came in since, uh, since it's called the quadratic code, why, why is it called the quadratic code when it's a five by five grid? Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, I can. And uh, the answer is I really don't know because I had to research it after I came home. I had first came across uh, the tap code uh, in Darkness at Noon. It was a novel written about 1942. And in that, a prisoner uh, uses the tap code uh, to communicate in one of the gulags. And Coster, the author, refers to it as the quadratic alphabet. So when you saw that title on top of the visual that I use when I give lectures, right. that's where it came from, that book. I really don't know what's behind it. My guess is 
they weren't looking at the content of the square. They simply were looking that there were four sides. Okay, yeah. It's a four-by-four four box. Yeah, or, that's kind of what it is, but I really don't know. I'm okay. not that smart. Okay, Got yeah, fair enough. Um, a couple other things, uh, questions came in and uh, actually on this one, uh, and people want to know, did you ever, we talked a lot about the care packages that we sent over to you over the years and the fact that um, the Russians would probably take things out of it and keep it for themselves because it all had to go through the Russian post office. Uh, did you ever receive anything really good in the care packages that we sent over to you? I had asked at one time your mother if she could send me some marine green T-shirts and boxer shorts, figuring that she would recognize that, in fact, I was still alive because I would be the only idiot in the world who would ask for such. Your mother took me at face value, and she mailed them in one of the packages. Nobody in uh, the Russian or the Vietnamese post office knew what to do with marine green underwear, so I ended <laughs> up getting it. And it was simply great. It hung in there. You don't need white underwear when you're in jail. No, I imagine not, especially the conditions you all were living in. Very filthy conditions, for sure. Um, all right, so one more. Uh, let's do one more lightning round question. And this one came in from a Dr. Trey Leith. Um, and he mentions a movie that probably a lot of people have seen, The Shawshank Redemption. In that movie, it's a, it's a story about a guy that receives a life uh, sentence for murder, and he's in prison, and they were able to smuggle in a small little chisel uh, that he's uh, supposed to be used for shaping uh, small stones. And he used that, that little chisel to basically dig his way out through the concrete and escape from the prison. And uh, Trey wants to know... Did anything like that happen in Hanoi, in Vietnam? Were, were, were you all able to smuggle in, or was anybody able to smuggle in anything that you could use to u uh, use against the enemy? Uh, like uh, he mentioned, Doug Hegdahl, for example, was destroying trucks by putting dirt in their gas tanks. So was anything smuggled in that would assist you in the, the things that you were trying to accomplish over there? Uh, to the best of my knowledge and my experience, the answer to that uh, very briefly is no. The sharpest instruments that I ever managed to get into a cell were a uh, rusty razor blade, uh, a, a nail, a Bic pen, and uh, none of those were very good. Uh, there really wasn't much sense in tunneling out because the water table was so high uh, you'd hit water as soon as you went through uh, the floor. There was no problem getting through the tile. Actually, the problem was not getting out of the jail itself. It was you as uh, uh, a Caucasian trying to get out of a million, uh, surrounded by a million Vietnamese in, in Hanoi. That was the real problem. But doctor, no, they, uh, to the best of my knowledge, we never got anything. Okay. All right, good deal. Well, look, so here's what I'd like to do today, Dad. This is, uh, and, and this is a topic that I, I think personally is very interesting, working for a healthcare company. And I, I believe people across the country are, will really be interested in this because I want to talk about healthcare. I want to talk about the healthcare that you all received while you're in Hanoi and 
I know that may be an oxymoron because I know you didn't receive much of it. But here in the United States, especially when people get sick, uh, when people are uncomfortable, we really almost take it for granted. We just we go to the doctor. Uh, the doctor gives us, uh, uh, prescribes a treatment, usually some medicine, and it makes us better, um, typically uh, pretty rapidly. Um, but when you're over there in Vietnam living in the conditions that you're living in, in these primitive conditions, you can't take anything, not even simple things like that, for granted. We talked a lot before about the lack of food and the lack of water that they, they gave you. And we've also talked about the unsanitary conditions you were living in. You were sleeping on a concrete slab. You had very little access to clean yourself or very few opportunities to take showers most of the time. Because of all these primitive conditions and, and the lack of food and water, I know you've told us before, you lost a lot of weight. So during the whole six plus years you were over there in Vietnam, what, what do you figure the lowest weight was? I know you, you never got access to a scale, but what, what do you figure the lowest weight that you ever got down to was? Well, my guess was about 105 pounds. I was 180 when I shot myself down. And I determined that by taking my hands and making a circle with my index finger and my thumb and running them from my butt down to my ankle. And, of course, I had to pop them out a little bit there to go around the knee. But they did not separate all the way down. So I was basically a stick at that part of me. And it was kind of hard to even find my butt. So it's pure guess, 105 pounds. And probably when I was released, they started fattening us up. I probably came in at Clark Hospital at about 140 pounds. All right, so you, you get shot down there at 180, down to about 105. Um, so most of the time you were probably sitting somewhere between 105 and maybe maybe 120, 125 pounds. That is correct. They really, I know you've told me before, they really tried to fatten you up before they released you uh, so, so they wouldn't lose face. Um, so, um, what was it like there? Um, they moved you all into Camp Unity uh, together after the Sante raid. The food improved a little bit then, and 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 you moved up from that 105 uh, uh, somewhat. Correct. That is correct. It didn't really uh, improve in quality, but it improved in quantity, and that's really what counted. Okay. So, with with all this, with the lack of food, the lack of water. Uh, the lack of sanitary conditions and the fact that you're sleeping on these cold concrete slabs, there's no doubt people are going to get sick. And that's what I really want to talk about today, because like, like we said before, here in the United States, um, we have great access to health care, uh, which and I want to talk about what kind of access you guys had to health care over there. You you relayed to me a story where and I believe this was in Camp Unity, correct me if I'm wrong on this, but there was a point in time where 80% of the POWs in the camp that you were in got really nasty eye infections. I believe it ended up, it was pink eye, but extremely nasty ones. Um, was that in Camp Unity that that, that occurred? That's correct. That was Camp Unity. Okay. So again, here in the United States, probably... It's uncomfortable for sure, um, 
but not that big a deal. Even if it's a bacterial infection, you go and you get some antibiotic eye drops and it knocks it out in a couple days, but you're living in the dirty conditions that you all live about, we're living in then. I, I wanna talk about that and examine that a, a little bit. So can you tell me and uh, for everybody listening, tell us the story of how this all came about and how, how serious did this problem get over there? Well, there really isn't that much do as you, uh, you can do, as you just explained about uh, pink eye. It is extremely uncomfortable, and it certainly denies you very much rest. If you mishandle it yourself with your um, uh, literally hands, uh, you can cause damage to your eyes, but it has to run its natural course. Uh, there was very little that the Vietnamese could do about the pink eye, but what did come across was that apparently it was associated with something other that was of epidemic proportions going on in the town of Hanoi. And at this point, they came uh, to the three colonels that were our senior ranking officers and told them that they were going to give us three shots well, we were laymen, but we were smart enough to realize that you don't give shots for pink eye. And uh, they finally explained that there was an epidemic going and that it was required for our safety as well as the safety of the guards and the rest of the town. And those, the shots would be given to us. Well, uh, of course, we had been trained up for years by Jim Stockdale. If the v uh, Vietnamese communists wanted something, your automatic response was to deny it to them. That was really the only resistance posture you had. So they announced that we were all going to get shots, and we had a bunch of guys turn around and say, like hell, we're not going to take shots. We'll die like a man. And now our leadership had a problem. They had, uh, they had to get these guys uh, to take shots. We could hold them down and have the VC inoculate them, but that certainly was somewhat un-American, and I doubt if we could find enough guys who were willing to hold their fellow prisoners down. Uh, we could coerce them. We could try to honey-talk them. We could do all kinds of things, and they tried the whole gamut of, of leadership techniques to try and persuade these folks to do it. And finally, Stockdale stood up and recognized that it was his policy that they were talking about. If the VC wants something, deny it. So he better get up and announce that they would, in fact, comply with this order. And he did it by giving up on all the fancy stuff, turned around to his basic training, and gave them a direct military order. You will take the shots. If you do not, you will be court-martialed when you return and you will be denied any recognition and honor for anything good that you did in your time here. And at least uh, Peck's bad boys, they, they recognized that uh, they were still in the military, and they didn't give a cheery I.I., but they gave an I.I., and they took the shots. All right, so they followed Admiral Stockdale's orders. Thank God for them, right? Absolutely. <laughs> I, I, I love Jim Stockdale, but I would not want to cross him. No, sir. That, that would not have ended up well. Um, okay, uh, another thing I, I want to talk about today is one of the short stories that you wrote uh, many years ago and you put in the book 
that uh, you all that you made for our family, uh, Tales of Southeast Asia. So in that book, there is a short story called Jail Yard Medicine. And I was rereading that the other night. And I was thinking to myself about another situation where, again, here in the United States, if something like this happened, it would be relatively simple to treat. But one night, you all had one of your fellow POWs. He was an Air Force captain. He had, he had a case, he had a severe asthma attack. And so what the heck do you do when you have no access to medicine, uh, when you have a severe ax, uh, asthma attack and you have no medicine? Um, can you tell me what you all did? Tell me how all this came about and what was the outcome of that? Well, this was in, uh, in cell seven and, uh, the Air Force captain had this disease uh, evidence th- from the time he was captured. He was allergic to something, probably North Vietnam. <laughs> and and the, the Vietnamese communists were used to him having these attacks, apparently. Now, one of the assignments we had is we assigned uh, one of our junior officers to be the, the so-called medic for the squadron. He'd be in charge of... Uh, trying to keep us all healthy. Rob Doremus was our uh, our medic. And he went to George and determined that George was, in fact, in extremis. It was more than just an attack that this guy was fighting for his life. And we had just had a minor riot, and we weren't quite sure how welcome a call for the doctor would be, but we decided that we had best call for the doctor and take our medicine, whatever they decided to do to us. Fortunately, the Vietnamese duty officer came and uh, with a couple of guards, checked out, recognized that, in fact, George was in extremis, got a hold of a whoever the duty uh, Vietnamese corpsman was, got a hold of an inhaler or something like that, and got it to him and got George stabilized so he at least although was wheezing and coughing, was breathing and able to uh, intake some oxygen. And in effect, we are concerned, saved his life at that point in time. Uh, Why would they do that for us? You have to recognize that at this point, we had value as hostages. And this is, is this in the 1970s, probably around 70 or? or This is about 1970, 1971. Okay. And they got him an inhaler? I'm actually surprised. So they actually had access to an inhaler, and they brought that to him? Well, uh, I, I don't know the medical term. They gave him something put over his nose and his mouth, and he sucked air through it. So that's okay. That it's my layman's terms. Okay. But it worked, whatever the hell it was. Okay. And so tell me, in, in reading this short story here, um, I, I had a question that came up. So... It was the middle of the night when this when this Air Force captain was having this Air Force uh, or was having the asthma attack, and you all got together. You were trying to help him, and what you all decided to do is to all scream out in unison, "Boxy!" And and, and I'm reading this story. I, I I didn't understand exactly what that means. So can you explain to me and to everybody what what does "Boxy" mean, and and why were you screaming for that? The only thing we were permitted to say was bow cow and basically was uh, layman's terms duty officer. 
Okay. That's the only thing you could ask for. And we determined that asking for the duty officer wouldn't get very much attention. Uh, boxy was a Vietnamese term, and it's my corrupted pronouncing of it, was for doctor. That, okay, so, so that was doctor. So we, we yelled out doctor. Okay. And that got their attention. Got you. Okay. And when, when they responded and, and, and to this Air Force captain, did a doctor ever come in, or was it the duty officer, or was it a medic? Who, who, who rendered the assistance in this occasion? A duty officer came in with two guards because we had caused him problems a couple of weeks before. Checked out the situation, went out and got whoever the duty corpsman was and bought him in. That guy is the one who bought in the, uh, the inhaler that I called and conducted the treatment. Okay. Okay, good I think, deal. I think it's, it's important to, to take uh, into consideration and pause just for a minute. There is no reason on God's green earth why the Vietnamese people should devote medical care to people who were bombing, strafing them, killing them, and their children and their sons and their daughters and everyone destroying their country, when you think right. about it. Um, they had limited medical expertise, period, and they were stretched for a 1,000 miles into South Vietnam where they had to provide medical care. So there really was very uh, limited incentive, except for the fact Thanks to Richard Nixon and to Henry Kissinger, we had value as hostages in those negotiations. And it became very important for them, if you had anything wrong with you, especially that was close to your, your brain pan to your head, that they would treat that just to keep you alive because you had value. Yeah, absolutely. And so here's another thing. Uh, we were talking about this earlier, and I think this is a very significant point, and, and I would ask you to explain this to all the listeners. Um, can you talk about why North Vietnam had such a lack of medical professionals throughout their whole country when the country was developing as a communist nation? What happened? When the Vietnamese came in and uh, organized against the French colonial government, uh, their method of attack was to go into villages and to scrape off and kill the leadership in each village. And that would consist of anyone who had education or who was uh, showing leadership, like the mayor obviously would be bumped off, uh, the doctor, the teacher, Anyone at all who had a college education or had been exposed to a technical school uh, that the French had run, they were afraid of rational people when they were trying to convert folks over to the communism. And in the process, they were rather short-sighted because they killed off most of their surgeons, uh, most of their medical doctors, uh, most of their nurses, and they had to start from scratch with themselves to develop some sort of a medical core. Communism doesn't seem too good, does it? <laughs> Even today. It, uh, it, you, it was funny listening to him talking about our intelligentsia that was supporting them, our college professors and college students, because their term for them was useful idiots. 
they'd use them, and then after they took over, they'd bump them off. Yeah. Okay. And and then also in the same short story that you wrote, um, Jail Yard Medicine, you you talk about there's really three you you kind of categorize them. There's three levels of healthcare professionals they ended up having in Vietnam, in North Vietnam, when, when you were there. Can you talk through those? What, what were the different skill levels that they had? Well, this was from my observation and my personal experience. They had basically what I call three levels. They had the level of what you would call a, a doctor, a physician. Then below that, they have what we call now, I think, physician assistants. And in the Navy, we call them independent duty corpsmen. Uh, and then we had uh, what in the military we call a medic or a corpsman who basically was a, uh, a nurse level, if you will. Uh, I saw those three levels operating. I checked with Nguyen Quoc Dot, the Vietnamese A-1 pilot who was in jail with us uh, when I was writing that article, and he confirmed to me that, in fact, that, that was the type of organization the communists had. Okay, and then also in here, you talked about the skill level that you felt like they had. Uh, one of these uh, one of these levels here, you felt like they had the skill level of about equal to a Boy Scout with a with a uh, a healthcare uh, achievement badge on them, right? What what would that be? Would that be their their medic or their corpsman? That was that was I, what I call their corpsman, and yet. To a certain extent, uh, let me give you an example of that. Uh, as a result of uh, manacles and the torture routine, uh, my right arm had become infected all the way down to my fingers. And I ended up with a boil from uh, my knuckles halfway up my arm to my elbow. And the head of the boil was about the size of a half dollar or so or maybe a, a silver dollar. And they wanted to show me off to some visiting dignitaries, and they couldn't quite hide that hand, which looked like something from the creature of the Black Lagoon. So they had uh, bought in the lowest level of medic they could to be the Bombay boil biter to take care of the right. boil. Okay. <laughs> and, and the reason I come up with this uh, Boy Scout level was th these guys, the guy that operated on me did a superb job. Okay, I still have my hand and it works. The difficulty was you could see that he was given the lessons, say, about sanitizing his instruments. He had come out and sat me down and he bought out a pan. He put all his instruments in the pan. He dumped something, I think it looked like alcohol, from the flame, lit the flame, and, uh, you know, basically sanitized his instruments. But then he reached in, grabbed the instrument, which of course was red hot, burned his hand, dropped the instrument on the floor that had been walked on for the last hundred years by all kinds of barefooted people. And uh, with that instrument now uh, unsanitized, did the cut on my arm. Right. And, uh, <laughs> and, and another one of those instruments, he fished underneath the skin and pulled all the gunk out and stuff. So like I say, uh, he bandaged me up. He must have used about a mile of bandage. It was a, a, a wonderful piece of work. I looked great when they put me in front of the dignitaries with, with this elephantiasis-type hand. Uh, you can see the mark today. It's about a one-inch scar. It's perfect. It's straight. It, it worked. 
And so you have to give the guy credit. So he learned part of his lesson, but he didn't understand what he was doing. And it's the grace of God that I didn't get infected. Yeah, so he might have passed his... Uh his instruction and got his badge with maybe a C minus. Yeah, but (laughs) got to give him credit. The the kid just didn't understand what he was doing, but it worked. So why complain? Uh, Got got it. All right. Um, So I I think that that was the experience that you were just telling me about after all the torture you had received. And this was back in 1967, I believe it was. So this was back early on in your experience after you uh, had been enduring all this torture, you had nerve damage in your arms and your wrists, and that's when that operation took place on your arm. Is that correct? That's correct. None of the other wounds on the arm that didn't show were treated with anything. Okay. The, the one that showed is what was treated. Okay. And they did that just simply back in 1967, and then 68 as well, they were only giving you medical treatment because they wanted you for propaganda purposes to parade you in front of people. Otherwise, they likely would not have done anything for you back in those early years, correct? Yeah, all medical treatment, uh, I won't say all, I don't know that. The majority of the medical treatment that I was aware of, like uh, hospital treatment to John McCain, was all for show. They didn't treat John McCain any of his injuries, they just wrapped them up in bandages and put them in the hospital and took pictures. Right. And then they dumped them to, to rot in our prison camp. And then that's why he was never able to lift his arm above his shoulder again, even after he came home and received medical care, the the damage was so bad. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. Um, all right. Well, I think that paints a pretty, uh, ominous uh, picture of what healthcare there was was like for you all um you wrote another uh short story in the, in this book tales of southeast asia that that's very interesting to me as well uh, about uh dental care the dental care that you received while you were over there because of some tough situations that you got into uh but first before you talk about that I, I would like you to to tell the story again. Tell tell the story to everyone about back when you were trying to get into the Navy. You're, you you had left the seminary. You completed your undergraduate work at Georgetown, and you're trying to get into the Navy to become a pilot. Can can you tell your story about your flight exam and and the meeting you had with the dentist? I had to go over to the Naval Air Station at Anacostia in Washington, D.C. and get my physical, and I conned my way through all the physical except when I hit the dentist. I hit the dentist, and I felt very confident because I had all my teeth and I was healthy as a horse, and he turned around and he said, you flunked. (laughs) That's That's not good. And I did laugh. You're laughing, but at the time, you know, I just didn't know what, and I said to him, what? And he says, you have to get rid of your wisdom teeth, your four wisdom teeth. You have to have them extracted. And I said to him, well, go ahead, pull them. I mean, I could care less. I wasn't, I wasn't smart anyway, so the wisdom teeth weren't helping me at all. <laughs> I was a C-minus student. Get rid of them. And he turns around and he says, no, it doesn't work like that. This is the government. And he says, you're not, you're, we're not responsible for you yet. You have to get them pulled. Well, I didn't have any money. I mean, I, I was down to my last, 
like $200 or something. And in any event, I had to go and shop for the lowest bidder dentist. There's always a lowest bidder out there somewhere. And I found a recent graduate from Georgetown Dental School up in Northeast Washington who would pull the teeth 25 bucks a piece. piece. 25 bucks a tooth, huh? Yep. So All I right. gave him 100 bucks, and he sat me in the chair. He got two... Two of the uppers out, and he broke the two lowers off at the gum line. And here I am bleeding. And uh, he says, uh, you got to go across the town and, 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 and get the rest of this stuff done. I mean, he took a like, this is just routine. And I told him, I said, you got all my money. Uh, you know, how do I get across town? He gave me a token for the streetcar. So I have to get on the streetcar and go over to Northwest Georgetown, where all even today the high rollers live. You know that that's that's the rich part of town, and of course the rich dentist is over there, who happens to have been his mentor. Also, oh, so you went to see the mentor. I went to see the mentor. So I'm, right. I'm I'm sitting in the chair and, and nice and comfortable, and, and it, it's obviously a high priced, more elegant place because they took my hundred dollars right up front. <laughs> no ticky, no laundry. So uh, that, that now I'm down to $5, Patrick. So anyway, I hear the nurse telling, you got this guy in here, and he's got, you know, he's bleeding. <laughs> we got to do something with him. And this came from Dr. So-and-so. And it, I hear the mentor say, oh, God, not again. So wow. apparently, apparently this guy had the habit of doing this. So the, the high roller comes out, and he literally gets a hammer and a chisel. I mean, they were nice and shiny and kind of kind of tiny, but just like I have my toolbox. And he gets in there and starts chipping away at my teeth. It was the funniest thing that I ever went through. And So he chiseled them out for you. Huh? He chiseled them out. He did a good job. He packed them, and he sent me on my way. And uh, I went back to the dentist at Anacostia, and I said, here I, here I am. And uh, after he passed me, then I finally said to him, now, what the hell did I have to do that for? And he says, I was the doctor for the returning prisoners coming out of Korea. And the most common problem was impacted wisdom teeth that caused these guys that lived grief and pain. And so I resolved that no one was going to go in that position again and suffer that way. And that's why I insist they're pulled. And of course, I'm turning around. I'm the cock of the walk. I'm the greatest guy on earth. I'm the world's going to be the world's greatest pilot, and I'm never going to get shot down, and I'm never going to be a prisoner, and I'm going to die like a man rather than be a prisoner. <laughs> and he said to me, someday, Stratton, you will thank me. Did you ever get back and thank that guy? The last line in the story said, I never got to thank him, so I thank you now, whoever you are and wherever you are. All right, you, you don't remember his name. I, I do guess. not. I, I don't, because I'd go and buy him a bottle right now. Yeah, uh, okay. Um, well, I, obviously, he he did you a favor. You didn't know it then, and uh, let's look at the bright side. You did not have problems in Hanoi with your wisdom teeth. I right? did not have problems with my wisdom teeth. But one of my dumber teeth gave me a problem, and it got infected. Now, how it got infected, I don't know, because we weren't getting any sweets or any of this stuff that's bad for you. And fortunately, we are now around 1970, 1971, and I now have value as a hostage, 
and this thing is near my brain, what's left of my brain, and the VC become concerned about it. And so initially they take a look at it, whack me in the face and wiggle the tooth and say, I do have a problem, and gave me an aspirin every night to put against the tooth. That works. I didn't realize that it was a good way to take aspirin. It helped, and at the end of the week, in comes a doctor. He had to be at least 105 years old. <laughs> <laughs> and and uh, the, the gown he wore used to be white. I, I think it used to be white maybe around 1850 or so. So it's brown by the time he got oh, to yeah. see you? And, and I, he sit me in a captain's chair, and on the back of the captain's chair is a two-by-four block nailed to the top, and that's what your head rested against. And he pours Novocaine into me and says, you know, basically punches to see if it's numbing me or not. And when I winch, he knows that it's not numb. And it's up my nose, in my eyes, in my mouth. We looked at some of the vials later on. It was four years out of date coming out of Czechoslovakia. Wow. So in he went. You know, this is once again, I've, I've been here before. I've been down the street before. The lowest bidder is now working on my, my tooth. And he breaks the tooth off. Oh, ah, geez. just like Northeast Washington. And uh, he goes, ho-hum, he packs some cotton on it, and he shoves off. And he took off on you? And yeah, it just took off on me. <laughs> well, it, it healed up, and I didn't feel anything. And about six months to a year, maybe, it got infected again. And now it's hurting. And they come to me once again. I get the aspirin for a week next to the tooth. The same guy comes in. He, he doesn't look any younger, and he doesn't look any smarter. <laughs> and he pulls out the hammer and chisel. I've been there before. These are now rusty. These are not clean. And, and he goes in cheerfully, humming away, and chips away. No Novocaine, banging the head against the chair. No, no Novocaine at all this time? Well, it, it, uh, he poured it all over the place. It didn't work. But it didn't work. All right. Well, his, his heart was in the right place, like I say, you know, like we're talking about that young corpsman. The heart all was right. in the right place. And uh, he got it all out. And uh, when they checked me at Clark Air Force Base, they turned around and said, the guy did a good job. What are you bitching about? <laughs> all right. Well, that's some crazy stuff. And, um, uh, appreciate you going through that, talking about that today, and I, I think it shows the how lucky we are in the United States with the type of health care we have here and our access to dental care, and uh, it's getting pretty late here on a Saturday afternoon, and you talked about a bottle that you would give to that dentist if you could know who he is. We don't know who he is, so I'm going to give that bottle to you this afternoon. Are you about ready for a bourbon today, my friend? I think that I would like some bourbon today, and, and this time I'd like it in a glass instead of having to drink it out of the bottle, okay? I will give you a glass with that bourbon. I appreciate you doing this, and I love you a lot. I appreciate it. Love you. God bless. Thanks again for listening to this episode of the Yankee Air Pirate Podcast. This episode is dedicated to all the incredible healthcare professionals that we have here in the United States. God bless America. Don't forget... Anyone can contact us with questions or feedback by emailing us at theyankeeairpirate at gmail.com. That's theyankeeairpirate, all one word, at gmail.com. We try to answer as many questions as we can during the lightning round at the beginning of each episode. We appreciate all our listeners. Semper Fi.